0: It's <sighs> <sighs> gotta get this you know. Mm. It's been a while. I forgot it how has to do Metro. It's it been, has. been like a month and a half. A couple months. Yeah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin i'm steven and i'm sam and we are very late but very excited to finally get into the swing of it here in 2022 and let me tell you since our episode remembering you know the events of of, uh january 6 uh a year ago you know things have just gotten better things have gotten i would say more peaceful more calm uh more more reasonable and i am altogether feeling much better about the state of our civilization um but uh Boys, regardless of the state of civilization, one must drink. So, what are we drinking right now, Sam?
1: Well, I am uh, respecting Lent, and so I'm drinking some black cask bourbon tea. It's the uh, Revan Paddock when he came up and visited a couple weeks ago. It's by Harney and Sons. It's very good. Smoky,
0: sweet, vanilla kind of bourbon tea. It's really good. It's good to see you practicing, you know, uh, fasting and the mortification of the flesh there, Sam, with your bourbon tea. Uh, very much in the spirit of the season. Uh, Steven, how about yourself?
2: See, uh, I, I took a page out of Sam's book, except I, uh, I, I heard it and I'm i having some uh, some raspberry tea with honey. And uh, this honey is from Honey Hill Farms, uh, your finest uh, honey distributor. It's the honey from my philosophy professor.
0: Good stuff. So given Would that, that say- we're drinking
1: pleasant things, Brevin, what are you mortifying yourself with? Are you just drinking like a cup of ash or something like that? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Ash of My Ancestors, yes. No, um, I was going to try and shoehorn in something like, uh, oh, so he's a professor of philosophy, but then I I decided it was just too much, so I, I'm not even going to try. And so you um, just
2: did it anyway. David Foster I, Wallace would point out the irony in a heartbeat.
0: It's it's meta, so it doesn't count. I'm pretty sure that's how that works. Uh, as for myself, I am drinking uh, two things. The cold dregs of my ginger turmeric tea from Trader Joe's that I do quite enjoy, but this is my second cup. I you know run through each teabag twice here and still managed to go through like three tea bags in a day. Uh, and then also some, uh, so here's the mortification of the flesh, some, some key lime uh, seltzer. And I, and I meant to just buy the normal seltzer, but I accidentally got the kind that has like aspartame. So it has like a really gross, sweet flavor, but you know, zero Ew. calories or whatever. So I am, I am actively mortifying the, the flesh here. So I'm pretty sure that that automatically um, makes me holy.
2: How many years of purgatory? Does that I have soda.
0: Been? Years and years. Um, but, you know, man... I mean,
2: is, that, is that what the Catholics mean when they call together a diet?
0: <laughs> I am sure that is precisely what it means. But, you know, speaking of uh, purgatory, one of the most entertaining things you can read is, in fact, Dante's Inferno about purgatory. But it is dangerous to entertain oneself too much, as we learn from our new book that we will be discussing uh, for the first part of this year. Uh, so, Stephen, why don't you... Take us away. Before we go, on, Brevin, what?
1: Dante's book about purgatory called Inferno.
0: Yeah, the
1: book about purgatory was called Purgatorio.
0: Oh, da- damn it! Well, I feel <laughs> thank you, Sam. Now. I tried.
2: <laughs> you have a degree in this. <laughs> Sometimes, and you're Catholic. Don't they like require that before your baptism to like just list Dante's books?
0: Yeah, you actually have to just read the whole thing uh, out loud in in front of the priest to make sure that you understand. Uh, what will happen to you if you fail, but...
2: Uh, I mean, that's like the, the top-notch Catholic fan fiction.
0: You're not wrong. Uh, you are, you're, you're in, in fact, absolutely correct.
2: My favorite words? Anyway,
0: I interrupted
1: you for the second time this this podcast, so go on.
2: I regret nothing. Uh, in any case, I think Sam and I are going to be uh, going back and forth on, uh, to go over some of the major themes of amusing um, Ourselves to Death. So, Neil Postman, he was a communications uh, specialist, sociologist guy back in the... Uh, Mid to late 1900s, and he saw quite a few cultural currents that he was particularly concerned about. And his overall theme is that we, as a society, have shifted from the written word to the um, to the visual. Uh, what he calls a metaphor. Um, so the the visual medium that, uh, that 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 we do our primarily primary cultural conversation through. Uh, and so central to the book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, is the statement, quote, the medium is the metaphor. And this is a riff on Marshall McLuhan's aphorism, the medium is the message. And so uh, he wanted to take this, this statement, uh, the medium is the message, but he had a problem with that in that a message indicates some amount of concreteness. It indicates some amount of uh, kind of the the statement in and of itself, but for him, the medium through which a, a culture communicates is far or is much more far reaching than a simple statement. Um, it is the way that dominates how you view the world. I mean he he called it the worldview that that TV will influence your worldview just like a book will influence your world worldview, just like a set of proverbs and parables will influence your worldview. That they impact uh, the the very lens through which you view the world. Um, and so this book is primarily concerned with uh, the forms of human conversation. Uh, and here, conversation, quote, refers not only to speech, but to all techniques and technologies that permit people of a particular culture to exchange messages, end quote. Uh, and so in a way, all culture is a conversation. Uh, this is ways we send each other messages. This is ways we communicate truths of various kind. And uh, for Postman, the shift from the typographic to the visual is uh it's it's one that he can't stop but he at least sees some amount of concern with.
0: Yeah, and I think yeah. going oh. as as we go through this. I mean, so this book was written I believe in 1986 and then you know got a nice reprinting in, in 2006. Mm-hmm. So he's so he's looking at the rise of TP, but all this is that it's it's funny. I was reading the introduction again and it's talking about like oh, you know, it's 2006, how was this book from 1996 relevant, you know, when he didn't even know about, you know, the pager and the, like, uh, answering machine and all the stuff, and it's like, I was like, oh, wow. So and the, now, the world wide web. And the world wide <laughs> web and email. And, and you know, here, uh, like, he, social media didn't even exist as basically a concept at that point, or, or at least not, not one with any real, um, like, blogs had just barely started occurring in 2006. Like, that only really started as a commentary sphere. I, I believe sort of uh, it like post the invasion of Iraq is like a major like influence on politics is, is, is these war blogs that 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 started happening and, the, and these people ended up in um, you know various positions of, of commentary and 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 powerful. so anyway, lots to potentially say but his message about TV isn't necessarily applicable anymore but the the core point is the medium is the metaphor whether that medium now is Twitter, memes, Uh, short clips, Instagram, like there are all sorts of new mediums that we need to uh, basically apply this, this analysis to. Um, So I think there's, there will be a lot of interesting things to unpack as we go forward.
2: Well, and I mean, the mediums, like you said, have changed uh, even more. So Uh, TV, the medium is a large, heavy object for him. Uh, Something that can't move. You need to approach it in order to be able to engage with it. Uh, That that has fundamentally changed now it's in our pocket. Um, And, I think. Do any of you have any phone numbers me- memorized other than maybe your spouse's, maybe a close family member or something like that? Um, do you like? I I don't memorize things. I, got my, I know
1: I know my mom's, and that was only because she drilled it into my head before we had it with us at all times.
2: Yeah, same. the me- the, the medium of the phone has outsourced our memory, um, in, to even the point where like I don't remember. lot of basic facts anymore because it's just quicker for me to pull out my phone and google it google maps has done more to disassociate ourselves from our community perhaps than uh than all the abstractification of uh, the last 100 years
0: yeah and and i did want to throw uh one other thing just because he's he's talking about you know the shift from text to visual medium to from 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 written things to to tv but it's interesting maybe and i need to work on this to, to see if i really believe this but the thought that i had was that text has become a lot more like TV, particularly with things like Twitter, in in terms of being transient, but also in terms of being online, infinitely malleable. Nothing is set in stone. Things are edited, things are deleted and removed. The internet isn't, you know, it, it, we we say the internet is forever, but it's it's that's not really true. People are moving things around, changing things. So much of the uh, like transient, non permanent aspects. That we used to associate with text have now, at least in our modern environment, taken on those aspects of of, of uh that that I think he will talk about at least a little bit with TV. Yeah,
1: no, I I, I agree with you there. And not only does it, I mean, it, it, I, I like how he expressed how it not only just shapes like how we perceive the message or how we interact with it, but it really shapes what you can communicate. um His analogy of the smoke signal, which is obviously very, uh, I mean, completely antiquated, it's more using jokes than anything else, but it doesn't permit the conversation of philosophy. You cannot have a philosophical conversation over smoke signals. You can have a very brief conversation. And so the the dialogue is going to be brief and um, and probably, um, what am I trying to say? Probably very objective-oriented.
2: Which I would say you could cross-apply that, perhaps not the objective-oriented bit, but you could cross-apply that to social media. It does not permit any sort of long-form dialogue. It, it's funny because when I first read this, I actually got moderately optimistic about the internet and social media in that it was like, well, it's a return to written word. Maybe like less less so than than a book or something like that. But then I realized, like, no, Twitter Twitter's medium of you can have what was it, uh, two hundred forty and now four hundred eighty characters. That does not permit a conversation of in, in any way an acceptable conversation on any sort of heavy topic like philosophy or politics or religion or, or mm-hmm. what have you. Um, the medium. It expressly forbids it. And I would argue, same with Facebook. We all know the long-winded Facebook rants that, you know, somebody has clearly put a lot of time and effort in and nobody reads them.
0: Scroll past it. Yep, you scroll past
2: it because it's not interesting. You don't need it.
0: Well, that actually ties very, very well into the next section, if you want to take us there, Sam.
1: So his next point looks deeper into this medium and what it does to our ability to process information. He talks about the invention of the clock and how it began to disassociate time from human events. Previously, we'd think of time as life experiences, the changing of the seasons, the birth of a child, the death of a family member. And you process this all, that's your conception of time. With the clock, we now fit time into this rigid grid, completely separate from our experiences. And as a result, now we experience time differently. It's passing us instead of us living in harmony with it. Uh, his quote here is, "Is Though few would have imagined the connection, the inexorable ticking of the clock may have had more to do with the weakening of God's supremacy than all the treaties produced by the philosophers of the Enlightenment. End quote. There he's talking specifically about how the clock takes time out of God's hands and now events aren't happening to us in God's timing, but rather are happening on this rigid grid. Writing does the same thing. It freezes speech. It renders it very it it renders it solid and you can see what you are um what what you're having dialogue on i love this point here because he's taking a very humble approach he's looking at exactly what writing does to us from both a negative and a positive stance and he's saying that it definitely does change our dialogue and only allows certain ideas and excludes others he has an interesting story here about a doctor a doctoral student who in his thesis cited a conversation and he cited it very exactly with the exact time and date and the person and where he was and anybody who would have seen it. And he said that this is, this should be valid. He was having a conversation with the expert, and this expert told him. Um, and his committee completely um, rejected it. They said that they could simply pass him verbally, um, but he wouldn't have any credential to uh, prove that, thus making the point that the written word, the written credential is the only valid um option uh this is an exclusion of how human t- society has functioned in the past where oral agreements and oral stories are regarded as true with the event of the written word we've now rejected those and we can see it in every part of life
2: and i i, I like how this um this idea of metaphor uh fits in neatly with what a, a lot of what we went over with gilchrist um in that McGilchrist hammered over and over that metaphor is it, it the, the, the way we attend to something, the way we view it changes the thing that we are viewing. Um, and so, okay. it, indeed, po- McGilchrist would would nod eagerly at Postman saying this um, and saying, well, yes, a written piece of paper that is somebody writing and signing or, or what have you, in essence, putting their name, putting their credentials, as having, uh, as having said this or having attested to this, that changes... Uh, the way you view it versus somebody saying something um even if you trust them completely somehow it's different um there's a there's a great uh scene in canical for Leibowitz where um the the abbot at uh, the monastery is talking with the medical uh, uh, experts who pretty much is arguing that he should be allowed to um to issue euthanasia certificates and the uh the the monastic abbot saying no we you cannot as long as you're on our ground you cannot. And finally, the uh, the the medical the the doctor agrees, and the abbot says, "I want you to write it down. I want you to sign. Like I want you to write down that you will not certify or er, certification, and I want you to sign it." And the doctor says, "Like what? What good would you do? You, you already have my word." He's like, "Oh, it'll do. It will make no difference. But I'll have it here in my pocket, and I can look at it every so often, and you'll know I can look at it every so often." And just like that, it changes the way that communication is passed. It changes it from the verbal to the to the written, and it renders, like you said, Sam, it renders the mutable immutable.
1: It's so interesting you bring up Canical for Leibowitz because that's in the third act, where in the first act, they were pretty blindly copying the written word, not really understanding what it meant. And so now the written, you've seen it move through this, this post-history, this, this, this future time, where now the written word is tantamount, and we know that it will be broken down again, which is fascinating. I think I think that the author is definitely recognizing the particular nature and the and the um the cha- the, the continual changing and development of how we experience like communication of agreement and knowledge. There's <laughs>
0: also the whole side of things that I'm not sure if he unpacks later or 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 not, but I just had the thought that you know in Greek philosophy, but also you know Christian history there's the idea of on the one hand uh you know the the logos and the word and you know the the gospels being held in in very high respect i mean i just remember a couple weekends ago visiting you sam and an absolutely gorgeous gospel um uh, on display at the new york public library mm-hmm. and just you know in encased in gold two latches one is uh peter one is paul the um you know the four uh, uh, symbols of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, surrounded by semi-precious and, and precious stones, just absolutely beautiful. And it was, you know, as is the oh. tradition in the Catholic Church, elevated before the whole people, this written word. But also that the there's also aspects of it where that can't be reduced to the written word either. And I'm not necessarily, that might be a different conversation than this. But, you know, like, for example, the church tradition is historically, especially from the early church, much of that is orally passed down and then, you know, put into physical practice. And there seems to be this this whole separate world of, of words where a lot of real meaning and actual true um, things are, are, are found. And it's only, you know, in like relatively recently, like the 1800s where they find the Didache or whatever, which then confirms what had been orally transmitted all the way from 1800 years before. So anyway, much mm. to unpack that I am not... Equipped at this time to do so.
2: That's interesting. They bring that up. Just imagine the idea of a liturgy simply just being read out, like like written instructions for like. But instead of like the priest literally getting up and walking around, just pretty much saying like. Now imagine I got up and walked around. Um, and here I'm thinking particularly mm-hmm. of Orthodox or Eastern Catholic. Um, do different things, but uh, uh, services where I mean they're they're incredibly elaborate. There's um, so
1: much movement, yeah,
2: and you can't. But you can't replace those with simply the written or even the spoken word. It's a different metaphor. There is a literal entering of the Gospels into uh, the, um, the iconostasis. There, there are just so many things that cannot be replaced with either written or uh, verbal word. Um, and so, yes, I mean, metaphor, metaphor changes with every single medium.
1: Yeah. So his next point is not only that the metaphor changes, and, and we've kind of found this already, but the content itself changes. Um, and so one of his great great quotes here is that you can't do political philosophy on television. Its form works against the content. Now the thought here, the obvious thought is, well, hang on, we do tons of political dialogue on on television. I mean, we have several different news networks. I mean, pick, pick whichever one you want to fit your political leaning. We put our highest debates. On television. I mean, go and watch C SPAN if you want. We can, we have plenty of political dialogue on television. What's he talking about here? Um, He looks to a few examples. He looks to William Howard Taft, who weighed 300 pounds, and asks the question of how would he get elected today on television? He can't. He was elected in time when the written word was prevalent and he was elected on his policies, not on his appearance. He probably would not be able to get elected today. Or Richard Nixon's advice to Edward Kennedy on winning a Senate election to lose 20 pounds. Simply put, the news of the day did not exist before television. This medium has created so much content and has caused us to view this content in a certain way that it is self-perpetuating. You can't, if you don't have television, there is no such thing as news of the day because you can't process that much information and and put it out so quickly. You're able to dive deep into certain topics and look into the, the, um, the implications of them versus looking to entertainment.
2: That that puts in mind, uh, I want to say this was like five or six years ago that Twitter, um, it, it just kind of like an advertising gimmick or something, like released a, I want to say it was like a series of books, like an encyclopedia, like a, roughly the length of an encyclopedia set of a single minute of tweets throughout the world. Um, and mm. just something like that where like no human could possibly hope to read through all of what is generated in a single minute. Um, but this is such a, a new phenomenon. Twitter's only been around for 10 years or so, or what, 10 years, 15 years? However long it's been around. It hasn't been around that long. And it by itself has created more content than I'm going to guess the previous 10, 20,000 years of of human history. Um, Which, I mean, just that idea itself, good or bad, it should give some amount of pause.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is the... Because he's he's talking about TV suddenly creating more content than is actually readily consumable. and, And, you know, his argument looking backwards from 1986 is, ah, wasn't it great when we could write things down and, like, you had to take the the time to get it published and there, you know, and there's these implicit gatekeepers and costs to writing things down that um, have advantages Mm -hmm. over television, but of course with the internet... you have the visual visual element
1: preventing one person's voice from getting through, right like, where we'd never listened to William Howard even though he presumably had fine policies, Um, and now we...
0: Back then we would, now we wouldn't, anyway. Yeah. And then, well, just, and then now uh, with the, the internet is just such this unique concept where suddenly the costs of producing content are basically zero, probably negative because you get happy just, you know, uh, from, from being negative that fundamentally changes the value of the written words that it's, I mean, and video too, the fact that everyone has a camera in their pocket, that everyone has a things that can text, chat, watch, read, create, in their pocket, the the, the glut of, of content and the reduction of the costs of that. I don't know, quite the quite the world.
2: Quite the Brave New World, you might say? Mm-hmm. Which that, that is one of the, the things that uh, Postman riffs on at the very beginning of, uh, or I think at his introduction was pretty much saying that, that Brave New World was right, that we're not going to be oppressed by some external bad guy that's, that's going to just crush us into submission, but that will just kind of slowly sink into this insipid lulled into a, a laziness by, by these amusements, um, by, by the, I guess the moral equivalent mm-hmm. or not even a carnival because at least a carnival was right before the past. Um, but I guess an eternal carnival. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose a uh, carnival is a religious festival and, uh, what is also religious is the Bible. And, uh, Postman brings up the interesting point that, uh, the Bible itself forbids graven images. Um, because the Bible views pretty much he, this is an ethical injunction, and it would be a strange injunction quote to include as part of an ethical system unless its author assumed a connection between forms of human communication and the quality of a culture. End quote. Pretty much the uh, the ancient Jews and God God ordering them so viewed that seeing the deity as something that is uh, encapsulated or uh, that is able to be encapsulated by a single image. Or uh, a picture, or a statue, or what have you—that that is an incorrect way of viewing the divine, and so they it, like they, they they forbade it. It was an ethical issue for them, and so this is just yet another point that, and the reason we're driving we're working so hard to drive this home is that the entire book rises and falls on this single statement that the medium is the metaphor, um, that a culture is fundamentally shaped by the way it communicates to the point where ancient cultures would would found entire religions based on these ideas. Um, and he has the uh, kind of uh, pithy little statement of, quote, people like ourselves who are in the process of converting their culture from a word-centered image to an image-centered, or sorry, quote, people like ourselves who are in the process of converting their culture from word-centered to image-centered might profit by reflecting on this mosaic injunction, end quote. And then he, uh, towards the end of this, he he closes with a bit of a thought experiment um, and says, uh, imagine an economist trying to articulate truths, and this is a modern economist, very scholarly and, and whatnot economist, um, trying to articulate a truth by A, reciting a poem, B, telling an anecdote about a late night stroll in East St. Louis, and C, giving a series of parables such as the camel and an eye of a needle. And again, his point being, you wouldn't take this guy seriously because right now the state of academia, the state of uh, dialogue or conversation within academia, and indeed in the broad culture, is if you don't have math, we don't want to hear you talk. Um, If you don't have the numbers and the figures and the statistics, we're just not going to take you seriously. Or at the very least, if you do not approach these matters with a very clinical, very kind of high above, very, dare I say, left hemisphere approach, uh, we're just simply not going to take you seriously. We might smile pithily at your, your nice statements of the camel and the eye of the needle, um, but... At the end of the day, we'll take it more as a perhaps moral injunction, certainly not an economic.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's a part of me definitely falls into that all the time is, you know, wanting to exclude knowledge. Like if somebody says, oh, I just feel this way or based on my experience, this is how it was for me growing up. Therefore, it has to be true. And I'm like, no, I want to hear your I want to hear the data. This has to be wrong, or at least it's minimally correct. Or I want to have an economic explanation for that. And yet I wonder how much how much knowledge we miss out on just because that's our default Go to um, in academia, and so to tie it back into Postman's thesis, if we're moving to images and we're not able to sit still for ten seconds and read, I mean, imagine how much knowledge we're missing out on if that's our if that's our um, orientation towards knowledge.
2: Which perhaps that's one of the horrifying things about the thesis is that not only is the medium itself training us to not be able to accept the previous medium, medium but this. Current medium is far worse at communicating the sort of truths, if Postman is correct. This current medium is far worse at communicating the sort of truths that we need to hear than the previous one. And so, like, it, it, it's it's yeah. this awful self-fulfilling prophecy where the more we get hooked on this new medium, the less we look at the previous one, and the less we look at the previous one, the more we look at the new one, and it, we, we just pretty much get completely disassociated from what we need to hear. Well, I was also I mean
1: this, is, this isn't really in Postman, but it's just thought I had. It's really the only medium. Like the only means to critique the new medium is using the previous medium, right? Like television isn't going to critique itself. The written word isn't going to critique itself. The oral tradition is going to critique the written word and say you're 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 destroying our culture, right? you're're you're, you're missing the deep traditions and the deep means that comes through moving in this space. Um, but, but the, the written word isn't going to critique itself. And furthermore, television isn't going to critique the written word. Television is just going to supplant, supplant it. I think there's a distinction there between replacing, supplanting, um, even D, de, de- evol- or or you know, de- dev- evolution, devolution you yeah, devolving, yeah, sorry, devolving into a worse form that's distinct from critiquing. So the written word still stands uncritiqued. Um, we just, I, I think that. that further build up his argument about how this is more Huxleyan in that we are it's just kind of a slow decline it's not a firm the written word's bad because it's excluding these things how are we going to respond to that it's fine if you're responding that's less dangerous than just passively um, sliding
2: right I mean talk to anyone and they'll or most people and they'll they'll heartily agree like oh yeah reading is better for better way of inserting communication or at doing communication and. And learning new things and blah blah blah, but how many of us spend time more time reading versus more time on the internet or on TV or on social media or what have you? I mean, look at us—we're we're we're criticizing the uh, the modern era of technology fueled communication on a podcast, and you can even see this kind of despairing criticism in a lot of like YouTube videos and whatnot that are I I, I've listened to a few that are criticizing YouTube for kind of creating meaningless content, and there's like they fully acknowledge, like yeah I'm probably one of them, but this is just the system that we're in. And unfortunately, writing a book just isn't going to be as effective.
1: Yeah. Sponsored by NordVPN, and then they have to give their whole sponsorship.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, I mean, that's a whole, like, side conversation about, you know, transition to memes, different other mediums, micro speech, whatever. Like, there's a whole institutional change that you can try and build out and just see how these things interact with their predecessors and things that uh, come into being alongside them, TikToks, whatever. Um, uh, but uh, just very... Briefly, uh, I I I have a poem, um, which is <clears throat> when the Fed to market quantitative easing brings another economy from recession springs. Um, and uh, just just, you know, just back on the point of an economist uh, speaking in poetry. And I realized that that was junk. Uh, but uh, so, like, just to talk about junky things, Sam, is, is is Postman opposed to, you know, junky TV? Not at all.
1: He's not opposed to junky TV at all. He actually he's very clear that he he, he says he's not opposed to junk. And he fully acknowledges that television is not uniquely junky, that there's loads of terrible prints out there. But it's okay to enjoy junk as long as you know that it is junk. It's okay to read the terrible romance novel as long as you're recognizing that you're not reading quality literature. And obviously, he'd probably prefer that you read something decent. But if you have to, at least don't further degrade your soul by claiming that that is quality. Um, Similarly, when he looks at television, he says that the best things in television are junk, um, and no one's seriously, seriously threatened by it. And this is his direct quote. Besides, we do not measure a culture by its output of undisguised trivialities, but by what it claims as significance. Therein is our problem, for television is at its most trivial and therefore most dangerous when its aspirations are high, when it presents itself as a carrier of important cultural conversation, end quote. He's referring to like news media here, which is, I mean, he was even right before the um the development of you know network news and and cable cable news programs fox CNN and all that um and even then he's looking at television saying it's just made to entertain but it's saying that this is it's this is its loftiest value of giving us quick news of the day when really it's not succeeding at doing that at all and it's actually conditioning us to to digest everything as entertainment um Junk is perfectly fine. There are multiple examples of this. I know there's a reality show. Me, my wife, and Brevin and his wife enjoy it very much, and we've watched it together a few times. Um, utter trash of couples trying to fall in love, like The Bachelor, but worse. But it's fine because we, everybody, is in on is kind of in on the joke, in on the fact that we know what this is. It's junk, but it's also entertainment. And we can treat it as such in that category. We're not taking this thing and treating this as something actually significant and culturally meaningful. I think to another article I read this week. Um, I think I sent it to you guys, but it was an article on um by the by the lead film film critic at Vox talking about jackass. And she was she had to watch all four movies in a row for a premiere and walked into it terrified. Like this is gonna be awful. This is, Such, such crap. Um, And then she walked out of it saying, you know what, I have a deep appreciation for that because it was recognizing that there is no point to this whatsoever. It's just a bunch of guys doing dumb stuff to get the funny shot and laughing about it and doing it over and over again. And she's like, there's no no punchline, but it it just is. And I think that's, I, I really think that applies to Postman quite a bit is that when we treat something, when we present something for what it actually is, it's fine and can actually provide some form of meaning in that The danger is when we present something and treat it as something else when we present entertainment on television or we we present religion as entertainment on television it completely changes the meaning
0: that it is claiming uh, to convey that it's the the pretense that's the most dangerous thing yeah Mm -hmm.
2: well i think even of like presidential election debates which are supposed to be like the greatest cultural conversation we have. And I've, I think about the disaster that was this lat- latest round of presidential debates, what, year and a half ago? It feels like it was just yesterday. Um, I mean, yeah. No, granted, that was a particularly bad yep. version. But yeah, no, I mean, that's all they're there for to get these quick 30 second sound, or not even 30 second, five second sound bites that, that news agencies can run run through over and over again. And that's our highest base. And we'll probably get more into this when we start diving in a bit more. Um, but comparing them with some of the, the more classic debates, like Lincoln-Douglas, there—I mean—there is just no comparison. One is entertainment-based; one is information-based.
1: Great. Well, we should probably move into the articles there.
2: Speaking of entertainment, David Foster Wallace wrote a great piece of literature uh, where the central uh, MacGuffin was called the entertainment. Brevin, you wanna—you wanna tee us off with? Uh with some infinite jest.
0: I don't love that transition, but I'll, I'll, I'll roll with it. Honestly, it, hey, you maybe... didn't make a transition. That was, that
2: was hands it. were tied.
0: I was a, what? You thought it's above average. Come on. I feel like I am. <laughs> I feel, I feel disrespected.
2: Thank you, Sam. Thank you.
0: But, uh, for, for, myself. Uh, I I don't offer a single well-thought-out article because the article I was looking for, uh, not that I knew what it was, but I I feel like I would knew it if I found it and I didn't quite find it, which would just be sort of like a meditation on our condition in the current moment, perhaps bring in some some relevant literature and meditate on on the idea of the specter of nuclear annihilation, which once again has been uh, raised in the public discourse. And I should say probably uh, mostly as a matter of amusement, because it, it still seems also distant from us, much like Ukraine is a source of entertainment and amusement for, for many people uh, today, and also genuine concern, but also entertainment. Um, so I so what I offer this week is just a few tidbits from some articles. Uh, there's one, uh, how Ukraine could become a nuclear crisis in the Atlantic, uh, newsletter talking about a 10-year-old n- nuclear blast simulator that's becoming popular. Again, people are checking out uh, and, and and seeing if their cities, are, if if they're in the part of their cities that would be leveled should a nuclear bomb of X megaton go off, uh, and then an explainer of as Stephen said on Escaton, the game of nuclear war in David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. Uh, so I'm just going to run run through these. Uh, starting off with the uh, Ukraine article, which is not terribly complicated, but just to say that. We are once again uh, at a, a a place where, at least for a time, Russia's nuclear forces were put on high alert. U.S. forces for some training exercise, I believe, happened to be on, on a vaguely similar level. And of course, you know... When you have countries such as the U.S. and Russia in such a situation where they're essentially staring each other down in many ways about, you know, no-fly zones and shipping planes over and and weapons, that's the kind of situation where accidents can happen, where people can misread the intentions of opponents, and especially with um, nuclear deterrence and nuclear war in theory, to win, you you have to strike first, or or at least react fast enough to an opponent's first strike, which is where you get legendary stories, such as the the guy who, uh, you know, saw the apparent American missiles incoming and decided not to pull the trigger uh, when it turned out their satellites or their radar was was just fuzzy. Uh, so that brings us to Nuke Map, which is a nuclear effects calculator, uh, which is to say, it just shows you the radi the the radii of destruction if a bomb went off in a given location you know and you can choose where you want to drop that right on your home in the middle of town whatever um and there's an interesting little anecdote from the interview with the creator of this website who i believe is a historian and the, the uh writer of the newsletter asks him uh, how americans use this um nuke map and the creator says uh that um, that Quote, Americans by far nuke themselves most of the time. They prefer experiential nuking. I'm not going so far as to say it's narcissistic, but our main mode of using nuke map is to look and see what will happen to us. Uh, which actually, to be honest, I found a little bit heartening, uh, in the sense that they weren't doing it to other people to see, ah, so here's what would be cool if we nuked Moscow, here's how many people we could kill. So that is uh sort of that was a bright spot in this conversation. But on the other hand, things like Escaton, where you are simulating nuclear war or games like defcon uh which is a a classic i believe based on um the movie war games in which a, a computer takes over a simulation and then proceeds to almost start nuclear war uh but in the game defcon you have missile silos you have radar you have planes you have a fleet you have submarines and the clocks stick down to defcon one where you can launch and um there's all sorts of uh, you know events that can speed that up but but the goal is to score the highest to score the most points but by score we mean civilian casualties you are trying to hit your opponent's population centers and kill as many people as possible and this whole conversation or you know the the, re, in, 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 the re-emergence of nuclear weapons in into the discourse I thought just deserved a bit of pausing and reflecting because I personally have evolved on this topic from my times as uh, you know, sort of a evangelical something like that, non-denom by by default, and and moving from um, you know the various stories that can justify Hiroshima and Nagasaki to uh, thinking that their nuclear weapons are basically unjustified under any circumstance, that they're unjustifiable by uh, natural law, uh, just war, or or anything. Obviously, the 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 topic of nuclear apocalypse, nuclear annihilation, ties in quite neatly to a lot of our favorite topics. Uh, it's it's already been invoked, a canticle for Leibovitz. Um, and actually that exact euthanasia scene uh, where I just sort of recently had the thought that there's a parallel between the necessity of the refusal of euthanasia to also refusing to engage in the idea of nuclear war. It's, it's much the same step that if you think that if thought about clinically results in this inhuman, this inhuman calculations and technical arrogance, whereas the only moral thing is to say, no, not, not not by my hand so then all of this just sort of I just want to throw it to 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 you boys which is sort of like the big sort of central moral philosophical question of, of this whole moment that we're in here um which is you know uh what mutation do you guys hope you'll get from the nuclear fallout
1: asking the well so I, I actually while you were talking about that I dropped a standard Russian uh, cruise missile nuclear warhead on Manhattan. And I'm actually, we're actually still well within the thermal radiation sphere, which is pretty huge, but I'm feeling pretty lucky because our building is a pre-war building, 1932. And the basement actually still has the signs from the office of civil defense, marking it as an official fallout shelter. So I think we're going to be fine. Like they never took them down. (laughs) So I'm not worried. No mutations here.
2: Oh, man. That's lucky for you. I, on the other hand, my, my building is all questionable architecture at best. And so, uh, I mean, my hope is for a quick death. But if I can't get that, I'm, I'm stuck between third arm, because I just feel like that would be really useful to have, like, carry extra groceries in from the car or, or whatever you want. Actually, no, I think I'm going to stick with third arm. I was going to go third eye, but I don't think a third eye would actually be all that useful. Unless it was in the back of the head, but that's just kind of creepy, and you know, I, I just, it's not a great aesthetic. So I'm gonna go third arm.
0: That's great. Uh, I, I, I do have to mention that the third arm does grow out of the side of your head. The uh...
2: <laughs> perfect, just what I had in mind. The eye on the back of the head, creep arm, totally
0: fine. Steven, so uh, you know, as a, as a sop to you, I, I, I brought the eschaton into this. Uh, so how does? How does David Foster Wallace, what would he say about our penchant for both uh, global and personal annihilation?
2: I mean, so to be honest, Infinite Jest, while I sort of kind of enjoyed it, it was a weird book and I don't think David Foster Wallace is um, finest. I really like his nonfiction stuff a lot more. Uh, but for him, the whole, so it, I actually read uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death as a prerequisite for Infinite Jest because his whole thesis in Infinite Jest is, is pretty much Amusing Ourselves to Death except narrativized. It's that we are just so consumed with this entertainment industry. Um, the, the whole, like I said, the whole MacGuffin is called the entertainment, which uh, a bunch of terrorists are trying to take hold of because it's it, it's a video that is so entertaining that you don't want to do anything else except watch it over and over again until you start. And so their plan is to disseminate it out to the whole public and just wipe out everyone because they're all be stuck to their screens, um, which is a, I guess, apt metaphor for our current uh, cultural situation, um, as it were. Damn it, the terrorists won in real life. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that David Foster was on, uh, on this. And I mean, pretty much him saying, looking into the future and being terrified in a way he predicted Netflix. I mean that he has uh, a commercialized dissemination where you just automatically download videos. And this is before the internet or like right at the advent of the internet. And he's already predicting Mm -hmm. Netflix. Um, And so for him from like, I I mean, it's a child's game. Um, It's, it's done at a prestigious tennis institution and they're all role-playing different countries trying to nuke each other and trying to gain advantage and he does a whole lot of weird stuff with the whole um what i what's the 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 map is not the land or something like that um he does he does some amount of playing with the idea of metaphor in that um the the whole game falls apart when one of the players realizes that he can fire um fire the quote-unquote nukes tennis balls at his fellow players and that still technically counts as a hit. Um, and so the whole game just goes up in smoke because the metaphor is broken. Um so he does he has a lot of kind of really funny playing with uh, different ideas in this game, but at the base, uh, the, I, I guess it's uh, the underlying message is nuclear annihilation is taking the form of a game. And whatever you want to do with that, if you want to say, and therefore we all view it as entertaining, which I think would be a very apt criticism because I find myself weirdly thrilled by the idea of nuclear annihilation. Um it's. It, whenever it, it insert something something about you know wars and rumors of wars that we always just kind of our ears perk up and all of a sudden we feel that much more alive um, yeah. and, and I think he he's raising a decent criticism of that um, yeah so uh, yeah Dave Foster Wallace has always kind of brings the, the cultural criticism to the next level um, but our other uh, favorite riff Walker Percy I actually just uh, pulled up my probably my favorite uh, quote in Lost in the Cosmos um, and uh, it is it, it's very nice that it encapsulates all of that. Uh, kind of entertainment and uh, annihilation. So, thought experiment. Imagine that you are a member of a tour visiting Greece. The group goes to the Parthenon. It is a bore. Few people even bother to look. It looked better in the brochure. So, people take half a look, mostly take pictures, remark on serious erosion by acid rain. You are puzzled. Why should one of the glories and fonts of, the, of Western civilization, viewed under pleasant conditions, good weather, good hotel room, good food, good guide, be a bore? Now, imagine under what set of circumstances a viewing of the Parthenon would not be bore. For example, you are a NATO colonel defending Greece against a Soviet assault. You are in a bunker in downtown Athens. Binoculars propped up against sandbags. It is dawn. A medium-range missile attack is underway. Half a million Greeks are dead. Two missiles bracket the Parthenon. The next will surely be a hit. Between columns of smoke, a ray of golden light catches the portico. Are you bored? Can you see the Parthenon? Explain. <laughs> and that, that one always hit me because, I I mean, I've, I've been to the Parthenon, and eerily, he's actually kind of spot on. Like, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. This is kind of cool, whatever. But man, viewing it under a Soviet assault when it's about to be lost and when my own life is in danger—how how on earth can be bored? And that's kind of how I view whenever I hear stuff about nuclear war or just war in general. Is why am I not bored now, and why was I bored? before?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, just yeah, very true. Very yeah, present. But... Soviet yeah. assault. It's a little too real. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> it's and, hard. <laughs> and yeah. And 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 some people, uh, you know, just aren't taking it seriously, which, you know, just kind of gets you angry. But when you're angry, one tends to rant. Uh, Sam, what do you got for us?
1: Yeah, this rant is lighthearted in nature, but actually a real rant, hopefully. Though it does give me the feeling of, um, you know, when you're watching the news and it, it cuts from, like, some horrific scene and it's like, we'll be right back, you know, don't, you know, stay right there. And then it cuts, like, a subway commercial or whatever as, like, you were just watching people get, like, brutally killed in a war zone that's kind of the feeling i get with the switch between conversation and the rant which which means that maybe this podcast has in itself taken on the form of entertainment given that you our listener are probably more entertained by our rants and our jokes about what we're drinking and our banter than you are about the serious commentary about the nature of our existence and knowledge and war and whether we're actually
0: alive well on the plus side on the plus side though we we weren't cnn or whatever who's you know talking about and now Keeve has been shelled for the third time this week. And, oh yeah, Applebee's, thick mashed potatoes, and gravy. Come down, you know, a, like which, which was a widely circulated. So at least we're not that bad. That, um. that was, yeah, that's true.
2: We may be well, part of the, the problem, but we're not that much. Okay. Of, or We're not that big of a problem. We're part of it, not the major part.
1: Not the major part. Okay, that's good. Because the real rant is, uh, what are there more of in the world? Wheels or doors? This question has plagued me for about a day. Um, I was initially team wheel, and I just figured there are more wheels in the world. I, I I don't know. I thought there were. But there is a strong argument for doors. For example, the primary function of, or source of wheels are going to be cars. That's a wash. Most cars have two the four doors. And that's not even counting the hood or the trunk. Buildings have doors all throughout them. And no wheels. Um, and even there are doors and places where there are no wheels. But then the question is, what is a wheel? How about the wheels inside of, on drawers, in dressers? What about pulleys? Are ball-bearing wheels? Slowly I realized that this is going to be a much more difficult question initially. Um, suppose, what's, I mean, what's a door? Is a, Is a door, I mean, a trash can? are bookstores after all it seems to fit most definitions of an of a flat object attached to a swivel um all i have to say is this is causing a doubt all all semblances of trying to define or even distinguish between separate objects it's way worse than the whole sandwich thing and uh stay tuned as to whether we ever figure it out
0: and we'll get you an accurate count the next podcast which there are more of
2: i've been counting all day i'm i'm pretty sure it's
0: uh it's an excellent (laughs) debate i i think i'm still team wheel um uh 100 yeah okay wheels. good good i'm glad to see that there's a, at least one reasonable person on this podcast so team door over here
2: no i'm wheel i'm team wheel no no I, I'm we're team all team wheel. wheel you heard it uh, breeding, we officially endorse team yes wheel.
0: that's right uh so all all you door people out there uh y'all y'all can shove it uh so for for my rant um this is this is slightly less coherent and and, and i'm mostly just like looking for some input from my uh fellow co-hosts here. Uh which is to say I got into a conversation with a friend the other day talking about uh you know if 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 modern sects of Christianity were like D&D classes, you know, like what are the different aspects that they're going to have, right? So like with the orthodox, like a max level patriarch, pretty cool. Like you you know you're, you basically have like national level firepower. But the problem is you have no AoE. You have no crowd control. and you definitely want like a Pope or a Cardinal, you know, someone that can actually like have some like universal, some, some reach to it. Uh, And then, you know, like what if you're looking at orders, right? Like you could be a Dominican and have like five extra spells memorized, but Franciscans, obviously like they're kind of dumb, but they get the animal familiar stuff. Right. So like, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, So, so I'm just wondering, but like, you know, the, the Orthodox and, and, and Catholics are pretty easy, but like, you know, if you had to put a, a, D and D class of some kind of like evangelicals and Episcopalians. Like, how do you do that? Like, a, do, do, can you guys help me out?
2: I would say Episcopalians get like a plus to any sort of like economics because they're really good
0: <laughs> merchant to- class. <laughs> nice. I mean, that's true. The only thing, the only thing,
1: even around is they they have massive endowments on those beautiful buildings. So, exactly there is um, that there is that um yeah i mean like i i mean there's so much m- mean you could say which i don't want to do that in the spirit of ecumenism but yeah,
2: yeah well, like what would the cool a bar obviously a bar cool a, well, a yeah, yeah, yeah. A a yeah a bar plus 100 a bar yeah no i mean yep.
1: i think you could you can make a pretty strong argument that the, you, you know you've got the you've got all the music and
0: the Turtle merriment legs. yeah right mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I like yeah. it. I see it. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I yeah. I think uh you can look forward to the problem with reading religious D D edition uh coming soon, I'm 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 sure. Uh but 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 Steven, what is your rant?
2: My rant is on the Chinese water tour and I was always confused by this concept. Like I never quite got the idea of like dripping water on somebody like would somehow cause them to break or cause them to go insane. But recently my shower started dripping and my apartment, I already commented on its textural questionableness and its management is even more so. And uh, putting a maintenance request in is uh, oftentimes goes unheard for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so I have been enduring listening to my faucet drip and drip and drip for days on end. And I tell you what, you will go insane like five minutes after. Like I, I, I have to like close and shut the door, turn on the fan to be able to like, generate enough white noise not to hear it. And so that like buys my sanity some amount of time. But so help me God, if I had to listen to it drip roughly every, like every five to 10 seconds, oh my gosh, like no, I totally get it. You would You would break, it breaks so quickly. And so. And now put it, now. imagine if it was on your face. Exactly. I totally understand now. Like, I, I challenge anyone, do anything that doesn't involve music or sound like you have to listen to it. I bet you, you cannot last more than 10, 20, maybe 30 minutes listening to a water drip every 5 to 10 seconds. Like, you you, you have to turn it off. You have to somehow get it to stop. It is absolutely insane. And so... I I deeply regret any skepticism I had towards Chinese water torture. It is an awful, awful thing. And whoever would institute it on another human being, I wish them ill. Actually, I wish them to repent and find Jesus, but you know what I mean. Now, just
0: imagine that one were to design a society where the central organizing concept was a small device that would count every second with a tiny tick, 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 and how mad everyone in that society would be.
2: Solid point right there. That's that's when humanity collectively we when we created the watch.
0: Lost our mind and our soul. We 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 already we
1: already said that. We lost when when we destroyed God's sovereignty with Chinese water torture.
0: I think that's exactly the point that we were making. Uh, but people have Batman movies to get to, so for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And we will see you on the other side of TikTok madness. I guess. The wash of the app.
1: Both. Same thing. What's the difference?
0: (laughs) Damn